Welcome to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. Each week, Dr. Rob sits down with athletes, executives, and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment. Here's your host, Dr. Rob. I can vividly remember this. I could just see the tracers of like machine guns and an RPGs just like zipping at this helicopter. And one of them got clipped. Somehow they were able to fly and crash and land back at the base safely. Um, but we ended up losing another guy there because they couldn't get him out, you know? And, and so the fighting was so intense that it took just a long time to even get some of our wounded out of there, uh, almost until the middle of the night. This podcast is brought to you by LiveMomentous.com. Leading the way in human performance is LiveMomentous. For listening today, you get a discount at checkout. Enter the code DRB20. That's DRB, the number 20, for 20% off your order. LiveMomentous. Optimize, perform, recover. So our guest today is founder and executive director of Hero Hut which is a 501c3. Its mission is to support and encourage veterans of all generations to discover civilian lifestyle defined by service and surrounded by community. Our guest is a West Point graduate and he played basketball there at West Point. He served in the Army as a captain from 2009-2015, led units in Afghanistan. Our guest is none other than David Hoffmaster. David, my man, thanks for joining us, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it was good meeting you a couple of weeks ago, so I'm glad to jump on the podcast here. Indeed, man. Um, well, I, I'm really excited just to get to your story and obviously hinge moments. But I mean, let's start. So those that listen to this podcast that aren't from Indiana or spend any kind of significant time in Indiana don't quite get how high school basketball is in Indiana. And you grew up, I want to get to the West Point basketball, but first, I mean, start by, start by telling us, I mean, what was your experience playing high school basketball in Indiana? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a different, it's, you know, to Texas football, that's what it is here in Indiana. Basketball is to that. So, you know, for me, I grew up playing pretty much every sport imaginable, but uh, basketball is, is the lifeblood of most of the high schools here in Indiana. So, you know, for instance, a lot of people look at high school basketball gyms and I think eight of the top 10 or maybe seven of the top 10 in the entire nation are here in Indiana. You know, you're, you go to some of these games that are playoff games, you know, come fall and you're, you got seven, 10,000 people at a high school basketball game. So it's, it's a really cool atmosphere and it extends throughout the summer where you're, you're playing AU basketball against rural towns and you got massive teams coming in from Indianapolis or near Chicago. And you're playing teams that, are uh you know their schools only 100 people but those those schools with 100 people can still be competitive it's it's just fun and it it resonates throughout the cities here in Indianapolis we have a really cool nonprofit that we work with occasionally called the City League and they're just a basketball nonprofit you know how many how many different states and cities would you see something like that pop up and it's all centered around high school college and just pick up basketball leagues that that pop up here in Indiana so I uh, I loved playing. It was a fun time. We had we had a pretty competitive team. We never uh, went too far. We always got smoked by uh, one or two of the teams that just always had a had a great uh, team. I think Greg Odin and Mike Conley back in the day were both in Indianapolis at the time. They they kept winning the state championships, but it was fun. I mean, it's just basketball is just a fun sport to play here in Indiana. Yeah, man. And when did like so? When did West Point get on your radar? Yeah, so that that's kind of a funny story because I knew I wanted to go to West Point probably when I was in sixth grade, I, which is a strange thing because I don't have my grandfathers both served a little bit, but you know they didn't have careers in the military. No one else in my family served in the military. I think I had a friend that told me about West Point. And they gave me a book about it, and I I read all the time as a kid. And I just saw all the pictures and I was like, oh, that looks like a really cool school. And um, I think by, like I said, sixth, seventh grade, I knew I wanted to go to West Point. And I actually got admitted to West Point before I joined the basketball team. So it's that's kind of the the flip side of, I think, a lot of athletes at West Point where you're, you know, recruited to play. 
Um, I was recruited after I'd already been ad- uh, got my admission there. Really? Wow, that is odd. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I am a, a five foot 11 white guy. So, you know, maybe you're not like being tracked as much uh, to play uh, basketball there, but I was going to look at playing football there as well, but I was a wide receiver. And if you've ever seen army play football, they like to run the ball a lot. Um, so wide receiver, no, thank you. So basketball, it was, I played just one year there and then went on to play intramurals and had a very illustrious career as a, uh, intramural athlete at West point. It's just, mm-hmm. that's, that's my only claim to fame at West Point is intramurals. <laughs> Talk to us about like your experience at, at West Point at this prestigious university, people that just aren't really familiar with it. They kind of see the game and, but I mean, there's so much that goes into being a cadet there. Talk to us about your experience. Yeah. I, you know, as you can kind of see, I'm someone that enjoys life a, a little bit. Uh, I should say a lot of bit. Um, West Point for me was definitely an eye opener and just in terms of a, a discipline. Um, and that was honestly the same for me going from high school basketball to college basketball. It's just a different, it's a different sport, you know, in terms of the mental toughness, the discipline, the amount of time and effort that you actually have to put in to be successful. And that obviously goes the same way if you're going to go into the professional level. Uh, it's just another level up. So, you know, it, I think I knew what to expect just because I'd read so much about West Point. I studied it for many years. I knew what I was getting into. Um, Thankfully, again, coming from a sports background and my father taught martial arts. uh, So I kind of had a, I at least had a disciplined family. So I knew what generally to expect, but you get there and then you can just kind of get kicked in the teeth a little bit as a freshman. Um, You go through basic training, uh, West Point's version of basic training in the first summer before you even start your academic year. And that's basically the whole summer. So you graduate um, high school, all your friends are about to go to, you know, for me in Indiana, IU or Purdue or go Chicago or a couple other schools. And they're about to have a really fun freshman year. You know, they're going to let loose and do that. And two weeks after you graduate high school, you're in basic training. And my mom loves telling this story. The, The first thing they do is they have your parents drop you off in this big gym auditorium oh, and they, yeah. you know, and they say you have 30 seconds to say goodbye to your family, you know, and that and that's, second goodbye. Yeah. And then, and then they just start screaming at you, you know? And, um, I, I had, I, I, I think I had a blast for the most part. Freshman year was not fun, but I, I really enjoyed the camaraderie there. I enjoyed that. It was not easy. Um, I think, it just offered so many different opportunities, not saying that every single day was not fun. Uh, If you've talked to any other West Pointers, they'll talk about walking hours. And that basically, if you get in trouble at West Point, you just put on your fancy uniform and walk back and forth outside during the weekends. And just for me, I had to do that because I wore the wrong colored socks one day. Uh, And I had to walk eight hours just back and forth. You know, if you skip a class, you're walking hours. If you, get caught drinking in the, in the barracks, you're walking hours. And so that's, it really is teaching you a different mindset there. But my favorite part about it again, was really just the sense of community and camaraderie, which then really goes to my, my time in the military, obviously, but I don't think there's really many colleges out there that give you the opportunities to, to see that firsthand where most of the people that you meet there that are attending really have just a passion for life and for giving back. And so I really, you know, that, that definitely impacted my life going forward. Mm-hmm. So you, I mean, the punishment for like drinking the dorms is not the same as wearing a different color socks. Right? <laughs> no. no, I had, I had a friend, a dear friend of mine, probably one of my best friends uh, still to this day that, that did that. And it's, I think it was 80 or 90 hours. That's basically oh, a whole, cool. a whole semester. Uh, and, you know, so you talk about mental toughness. Some people will just say I'm out because I lost my entire semester of weekends, but I'd say 90% of people said, okay, well, this sucks, but I'm going to, I'm going to walk and I will get through this and not going to um, enjoy it. But a lot yeah. of the people that walked that many hours had a really funny kind of dark sense of humor as well by the end of it. So, I mean, those, uh, cause I like ultra running a lot and, I mean, do you have to march like Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? I mean, like 21 steps and 
I mean, is it measured like that? Yeah, I mean, I I'll have to send you a video after this. It's pretty funny. I mean, you'll you'll have entire formations that just walk back and forth uh, in a huge courtyard, and it, it, that's all you do for. It's two hours on Friday and five hours on on Saturday, uh, and you just keep doing it until your hours are done. Yeah. Wow. Did you have anybody that you went um, that you were at West Point with that wanted to be part of like the Honor Guard? Yeah, I actually had uh, another one of my best friends. Uh, he was my classmate. He served with me in Afghanistan. He ended up uh, in the honor guard before really? he got out. Mm-hmm. Okay, always find he, that. He was much more serious than I was. I would have not. I would not have gotten away with being in the honor guard. I yeah. uh, I was known to smile in the face of getting yelled at, and so I think my my amount of push-ups that I did was probably about more than everyone else in my my class hey, combined just from if you like smiling this podcast too much. But and yeah. are already a badass, but it's all way too complicated. Then visit our website drrobbell.com and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment. So honor God wouldn't have done it. Can't do it. Right. Right. Um, how about, you know, you talked about the discipline piece. Just one more thing kind of about West Point. Like what was the skill that, you took with you from West Point that you learned there that that still is applicable today. Yeah, I I think there's just there, there's a multitude of things that I would say. One of them is just the skill of just simplicity of getting your life kind of in order in every way possible. And sometimes, even to this day, I let that slip in my life, and I can instantly tell when I'm doing that. But it's give me give me an example. Yeah, so it's it's waking up on time. It's it's you know making your bed. All it's uh, making sure that you're eating the right way. It's making sure that you're working out every day. It's making sure that you've got your uh, schedule and plan planner at least partially filled out, so that you know, all right, these are the, these are my tasks. These are my goals that I want to get done. Uh, and I'm not I'm kind of free spirited as I've said before. So that was really helpful to me as a, as a person just to really start honing in on the the simple tasks of, of discipline, um, which really just helps you in times where things are just kind of going haywire or you're going through chaos in your life or chaos on a mission in the military or uh, chaos in, at, your, at your job. Having those small disciplines that you can go back to really just is, is one of those things that I think West Point really does a good job of teaching you. Okay. And then you wanted to go infantry. Um, I, I did, but I was, uh, I think like six, 700 in my, in my class. So I was going to end up in probably one, how it works at West Point. So you're ranked in your class academically, physically, physically. I think I was like number three or four academically. I was like 700. So physically you were three or four. Yeah. But academically you're, 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 I was way down, you know? And so (laughs) you get to select where you get posted and your branch based off your rank. So it goes, you know, number one picks their branch and then they'll go to like Hawaii or Germany or Italy or, um, so I ended up going field artillery and, but I got to go to Hawaii. So, and I ended up then in an infantry unit as what's called a fire support officer. So basically they attach artillery uh, officers and artillery uh, enlisted to infantry units. And our job is to to kind of go out on patrol with them and call in airstrikes or call in uh, Apache or Kiowa strikes, and then also call in artillery, uh, you know, strikes as well. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, just segue, I guess, into a, a hinge moment there one of the ones that you know i saw in your book is sometimes these things happen accidentally so when i graduated west point um i was supposed to go out to a unit that was just getting back from uh iraq and instead i ended up in a different unit that just got back from iraq but they were going right back to afghanistan to one of the the really roughest parts of afghanistan so within a week of me really kind of going to this first unit of my military career it went from probably just being hanging out in Hawaii for the most part to knowing that in about a year I'd be going deploying with this unit to a really rough area. And so um, you mentioned in a podcast that you were on before about uh, Colonel Tooley. 
Mm -hmm. Is this when you um, were underneath Colonel Tooley? Yeah, yeah. I and I forget if I what I talked about on that one, but he, yeah, I, he was the best officer that I worked with. Uh, yeah, that that was basically my question. I mean, talk to us about like him as a, a uh, you know a commander. What made him a great leader? He, I I think leadership is difficult. You know, it's it's difficult to to control your your own ego. Uh, it's difficult to have the patience to to listen to others, to think that, to have the humility to know that you don't have all the answers. Um, the military, there's a lot of personalities. You know, there's a lot of, you talk about infantry or special forces. There's, I mean, you have a lot of alpha personalities out there. And so knowing how to lead in an effective way is, is can be very difficult. And there's a lot of units that can end up very toxic. Um, I was, I was pretty lucky to be in a unit that had overall uh, good leadership. And I, and I felt like he just exemplified leading from the front while also listening to some of his other leaders that were below him. Um, you know, one of my favorite memories was I, I joined this, this unit and it's called, uh, two, three, five infantry battalion cacti. Um, and we were part of the third brigade with the 25th infantry division. And the first day I showed up, this was just kind of his method of just testing you as a person, as an officer, uh, was to test. All right, well, are you going to be in good enough shape to lead the soldiers under you? And he immediately was like, Hey, Lieutenant, come to my office, uh, at whatever, six 30, whatever time it might've been. He's like, you're going to work out with me today instead of the, the unit overall. And, uh, he took me out on like a five or six mile run at like a, <laughs> a pretty good clip, you know, like seven minute clip just to see. And, and the whole time he was asking me questions about like myself, my life, you know, it was just you know, a very like testing session. It was, it was to see, okay, can you hack it in this unit? Can you, are you, you know, or are you not, do we need to put you in the office somewhere and let you not be with the, the troops? Um, and we finished that run and then he was like, all right you did well on that. Let's do like a CrossFit workout now. And I'm like, Oh boy, like this guy, you know, he's legit. Um, thankfully I passed the test, but overall he was just someone that had that charisma and leadership where you just wanted to follow him in some fashion. Um, he wasn't, he was fair with any kind of punishments that came down. He was, uh, someone that had already seen combat himself. So he had that experience where you're, you're able to respect him in that regard. Um, he gave the leaders and NCOs and enlisted a chance to succeed as well and, and set them up for success. One of the, one of the best things that I respect about him, this is kind of something I would bet most military people would uh, probably agree with me on is the bureaucracy of the military can be just overbearing. Um, you know, it doesn't even fitness, for instance, they come up with, ways that everyone across the board will be kind of lowest common denominator will be doing this kind of program, regardless if you're a professional NBA star or someone that is just learning how to do their first five push-ups, you know, and you're like, huh, this does not make sense. You got to be able to kind of create programs that are going to be elevating people where they're at in life. Um, and he was one of the few officers that kind of said no to higher ups. And he was like, Hey, give my unit and organization a chance to prove that if they create their own systems, that they're going to succeed. And it was kind of like big boy rules. It, it was, you, you do well, you're going to be praised for it. And if you slack off, you're going to get punished for it. And, and that's kind of rare in the military at times. No, oh, I appreciate you sharing that, man. Absolutely. Um, Operation hammer down. You were part of that. Can you, yeah. um, can you talk to us about that experience? Yeah. So that, you know, was, was a mission that is definitely a painful one for everyone in that unit. Um, we deployed in March of 2011 to a, uh, area of Afghanistan called, uh, Kunar and the Petch basically region, which is Northeast Afghanistan, right near the border of Pakistan. Um, if, if anyone has seen war movies, it's where Restrepo and the Mark Wahlberg one, I think that uh, I forget what that one was called, but all, all a lot of the movies there, a lot of the Medal of Honor winners are all from that area. Uh, it's just, it's the wild west. It's a mountainous region. It's almost impossible to drive 
anywhere outside of just kind of the river valleys. So basically you have these training camps that are set up in mountains and then our infantry units are, are more or less, we set up outposts throughout the mountain areas and then just kind of patrol through trying to disrupt a lot of those areas. Um, typically you're, you're just kind of sitting ducks. <laughs> you're everyone that is in that area knows you're there because you're on this little base. And so it's, I wouldn't say every day, but at least multiple times a week, you're you're getting you know machine gun fire at you, mortars, rockets, that kind of stuff, and it's usually not a lot, um, but it's just a constant you know pattern there. And then the pattern for us is we would then do usually major patrols or operations to try to kind of clear out some of these river valleys, these uh, valleys up into the mountains. And the largest one for us, it was Operation Hammerdown in the summer, which was uh, in June. And it was going to be a, a brigade-wide mission, which, you know, for those that aren't familiar, is a brigade has a, almost like, a, I would say, a couple thousand people. Um, it's made up of different battalions. So, for instance, my battalion was probably seven or 800 people. Um and, and then from the battalion level, you have companies and that's about a hundred people. And then down from the company, you've heard of a platoon, you know, and that's about 30 to 40 people. And from platoon, you got a squad of, of seven or eight you know people. So our platoon and our company was the main effort for this whole operation. So we were, we were supposed to basically land at the top of this mountain on Chinooks, which are the big kind of dual bladed helicopters. At uh, night? Yep. That night. Yep. So you're, you're training all the week before you're doing all the, all the planning for it. You're trying to coordinate with the air force, the uh, Apache units, the aviation units, you're planning with the brigade headquarters, you're planning with contingency plans with what's going to go wrong. You know, you're, you're doing all these things. Now, granted, I was just a first lieutenant, so I'm just attending these meetings. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a, very long process to set up this kind of mission. So immediately things, as we say in the army, always go wrong as soon as the mission kicks off. So the the group that was supposed to kind of set up the first blocking position, their landing zone wasn't adequate. So they had to fly somewhere else and land somewhere else. Um, and then we landed shortly after that in, at night, like you said. So you're in a hostile environment, you know, you can, we actually have like radios that can listen to the, the uh, other people's radios. So you, you know that they can see you already. Um, and we start walking down this, this mountain and it's treacherous. It's uh, anyone that does Rocky mountain type stuff or Appalachian steep hills. Our, our gear was about anywhere from, you know, 80 for some soldier, 80 pounds to, I think I weighed myself after a mission. I was like, upwards of 120, 130 pounds of, wow. of gear on you, you know, and that's, you're carrying all your water, food, ammo, batteries, your radio, you know, and all the things that you're going to need because there's no way to resupply you easily. That's all, right. you know, via helicopter. What kind so, of artillery are you taking um, like down so we, the mountain? So we had, we had mortars, uh, which okay. we had small uh, 60 millimeter mortars. And then, for me, I was coordinating with Apaches, Kiowas, and then we had something called 105 millimeter uh, howitzers. So those could those could reach from the bases to where we were going. So we didn't need okay. to bring those. I could just you know satellite radio call in, and that would be able to reach where we were at. Um, typically, on missions that we would take heavy fire, the uh, Kiowas and Apaches were probably the the option that I would reach out to the most. Um, and on this kind of mission, they're 24-7. So there's always two helicopters basically hanging out in the area on just immediate ready. Um, same with the medevac pilots that were there as well. So they're on a base about 15 minutes away, ready to come out immediately. But um, the terrain was so treacherous that we immediately started kind of having rolled ankles, you know, knee, pro knee issues. And then we started taking some pot shots and the terrain was such that we were getting separated uh, from some of our sister platoons that were in the same company. And you're, you're getting separated by these big ravines and, and places and cliffs and all these kind of things that make it just almost impossible to really coordinate efforts 
Uh, and again, the mission was to basically find this training camp and clear it. Um, and it was supposed to be all of us doing that together. What ended up happening was our, our platoon hit basically the hornet's nest. We, we hit right where everyone was at. Um, and immediately we, we took, uh, kind of like almost like a 270. It was like almost like an L shape with a little J, uh, ambush with, we don't know for sure how many, but dozens of people, uh, started opening fire on our platoon and we lost, uh, one of my classmates and really good friends immediately. And then we had a whole bunch of other people get shot within the first like five minutes. And it was just utter chaos, obviously, because you're, you're in the mountains, so you're hearing rounds and it, 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 the sound echoes off the mountains. So you can't really tell right. where it's coming from. Uh, and then you're you're hearing all the radio chatter, which makes it even more chaotic. And it's really just trying to survive that first opening um, engagement to really just get even an understanding of where you're at. Um, so that's that's a, I'll, I'll let you ask any question, but that's the that's the intro to, to hammer down there. Yeah. So you were, I mean, essentially walking down the mountain uh tons of gear on even so i mean even just the terrain itself they know you're coming right at them and then they set up the ambush and then you get hit what what um what was the process like then after that how many hours was taking place it, yeah i mean it, it went from chaos to extreme chaos <laughs> so I mean, I can still, re I mean, that was 2011 and I can still remember most of it like it was today. And that was early afternoon is when we first got into um, the engagement and that lasted the, I mean, nonstop firefight, probably till seven or eight. So five, six hours of just straight combat. Um, and then it kind of calmed down. But when I say straight combat, it was our platoon kind of getting all together and forming a little stronghold, um, a little patrol base, uh, trying to get our wounded and everyone in the, in the same area, trying to figure out what, you know, what the hell was going on with everyone else reaching out to the other platoons and units to let them know, Hey, we need reinforcements immediately. Um, and this is where it got really crazy. So there's a book written about this called dust off seven, three, and it's written from the perspective of the medevac pilots that were trying to rescue our guys. So initially when they came in that the fighting was so intense, they tried landing. And I mean, I, I, I can vividly remember this. I could just see the tracers of like machine guns and an RPGs just like zipping at this helicopter. And one of them got clipped. Somehow they were able to fly and crash and land back at the base safely. Um, but we ended up losing another guy there because they couldn't get him out, you know? And, and so the fighting was so intense that it took just a long time to even get some of our wounded out of there uh, almost uh, until the middle of the night. And then again, in the army, when things can go wrong, they will. So they, they were going to send in reinforcements via the Chinook again, the double bladed uh, massive like bus looking helicopter. Yeah. And uh, they either were taking fire or clipped a tree and they crashed oh, somehow. Wow. And so how no one died, but I think, half the people on board had broken bones. So now I, and I'll have to send you some of these pictures cause they're wild to look at, but the helicopter is done. You've got now 20 or 30 other people that need to be medevaced due to broken bones and legs. And, and then our position is still, you know, being attacked and we have a lot of wounded that needed to get out of there. Um, and then and by and, and your, your position, David, like, are you on like an incline? Are you at the, ravine are you on the ridge top like where are you at this at this point yeah and i i'd love to send you some of the pictures that some of yeah. our people got you know and there's actually some videos of this mission we had a uh some an army photographer they actually had to delete some of the stuff because they captured uh some of our people getting hit so they they thankfully took those videos down but um you can kind of get a sense from there but it was a steep ravine which eventually led to a very almost like a plateau that had almost no cover. And it was, there was uh, just a lot of just like little fight, like areas where people could dig into little caves and, and where, you know, throw blankets over. There were little uh, homes that were basically like stone homes that they were, you know, were able to hide in as well. And then 
And so it was just kind of a, a maze. And you, then you had the ravines as well, separating different areas. So those platoons that were actually only about a mile away from us, it took them about three hours to try to reclimb up, come around, navigate, sure. you know, also making sure that as we're calling air airstrikes, that we're not hitting our own guys, um, which I mean, I promise it's, it's not, it's easy to do. Um, so it's one of those things that it just got really crazy very quickly. Um, and thankfully that first night we were able to kind of consolidate all of our positions. And I, I don't, be I, I believe there was one other person that was shot because the mission went on another four days. Um, I was actually medevac to Germany, um, that next morning. Cause I had, I was taking heavy fire and I slid off a cliff and basically just for football players like a stinger and my legs just were completely gone um and i was medevac that next morning but that first day was really when all the the heavy fighting um was the worst at least in, in terms of the chaos because you couldn't you couldn't feel your legs right i couldn't feel them for for a good long time um but thankfully by even like the second day i, I could at least feel like tingling and all that but, um, you know, trying to carry 120 pounds or doing anything like that was, I mean, not even remotely uh, possible going forward at that point. Mm -hmm. Wow, man. I, I really appreciate you sharing that, man. Uh, uh, just remarkable in that, that kind of situation. Um, I mean, when that took place then, how did um, – what was it like for you debriefing and, and coming off that kind of experience? I mean, it, it was a lot. Um, you know, the, the guys that I served with, they were just amazing people. You know, the, the soldiers of of Cacti and our company was the Bravo Company Bastards. That's That was our uh, our nickname. A lot of them had done multiple deployments. They were they were good guys, you know, and they they really dug in that whole weekend. Um, it was it was tough for me to to be in Germany knowing that, you know, I just, you know, seen my, my really good friend, um, be killed and, and also just seeing how chewed up we got as a platoon. Um, so I did, you know, physical therapy in Germany for a couple of weeks and they were going to send me back to Hawaii, but, uh, decided to go back to Afghanistan, finished physical therapy, just kind of on the base and, and try to get back out there. But it, you know, emotionally that's rough. We had, we'd been in combat before then. And, you know, for those that maybe, maybe there's a few psychopaths out there, but it's the anxiety just rushes through you, you know, and, and the first kind of adrenaline rush, there's a lot of fear there. And then you kind of like calm, calm back down and get, get to being okay. Um, but when you see friends and, and others getting shot, it's a, it's a different ball game, you know, and it, there's, there's nothing that can, I think, prepare you for that, even though training certainly helps. Um, but we had a really good unit. And again, a lot of them had been through this, so they were able to recover pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, it, it takes a toll. You know, it takes a toll on your your psyche at times. And for me, my faith was super important. Um, but the community itself was very important. Just being around your your uh, fellow soldiers and your your friends and and just kind of going through that together was was vital to me, I think, personally. Mm -hmm. And how was your transition then when you, um, you know, when your deployment was over? Yeah. So I, uh, I was a little bit jaded, I would say. So I, I switched over to Intel about a year and a half after that. So I went to back to Hawaii. Um, we had about six, seven months of, of just kind of what they call reset, but you, you, you get off a deployment and you, you get all your equipment back in, you just kind of uh, relax a little bit and then you start ramping back up for whatever's next. And so I, I left that unit probably when they were getting, you know, ready to ramp up to whatever they were going to do next. And I got, uh, I switched over to military intelligence and then ended up in Georgia somehow with army cyber. I don't have a computer background, but the army and all of its intelligence set me there. Um, and I think there, there was, there was definitely some difficulty because it was for me, a very di a different unit. It was a Intel unit. It was not a uh, combat unit, you know? And so I was a very physical person. I, I really enjoyed the unit that I was in. And I think some of the mental toll 
uh, was was still there from uh, Afghanistan, whether I wanted to admit it or not. I looking back, I can tell that it, it certainly had an impact during that time. Talk talk to me about that. Um, I so part of that goes back to my childhood and some of my maybe crazier idealistic tendencies of of just wanting to to really help serve others or. Uh, you know, my, my dad ran a community center in Gary, Indiana, which is a really rough area here in Indiana uh, for his whole life. And you you kind of get used to seeing people push themselves to the limit, serving others in the military, especially infantry units. And uh, if you get put then in a environment where maybe it's a little bit more relaxed and people are a little bit more lackadaisical about life or or maybe they're, you know, they it, it, you you come down from this high of going like high adrenaline, getting after it, working out hard to, oh, it's, you know, kind of like a very cushy American culture. And so you can, you can become, you can take that out on others. I think you can lose your, your patience. You can, you can think that, oh, they're not, they're not doing what they're supposed to. Uh, and that can take, it, emotionally, it can take different paths, you know? And for me, I think it was maybe being a little bit too judgmental or, um, thinking that maybe I had more answers than I really did at the time. And I was still only 26. Um, and so I had to kind of relearn humility in some fashion and, and just learn from some of those things that uh, I went through and also just ask for help in some fashion, you know, yeah. and, and that could take a, again, a variety of, of paths, uh, whether that's counseling or, um, for me, it was just reaching out to others and just talking to some of my friends about what I was going through or talking, you know, see if they were feeling the same way. And 99% they were. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then the Milwaukee Irish Fest, that became a huge change moment for you. And I don't want to fast forward too much, but I figured you can make <laughs> that, you can make that crosswalk over and that connection. Yeah. And I, I think shockingly, all of this ties together. And I, one of the things that, in my own life, I've been really pondering is, is coincidences because I kind of noticed in your book that you mentioned, you know, things happen for a reason. I, and I mentioned already once my faith is, is important to me. Um, certainly not a perfect person, but it's gotten me by in life. And it, what's crazy, I was going, so my unit sent me to Oklahoma. This is 2010, right before we're about to deploy. They sent me to this course called joint fire observer course and it's it's a course training army officers and enlisted to uh effectively call in airstrikes with the air force so you you work with the air force guys you're doing simulators you're learning how to talk their language and and make sure that you're all on the same page and uh i it's a two-week course first week's over and i'm in oklahoma by myself and i'm like huh i'm about to deploy I had a, a band that I really liked called Gaelic Storm. I had a rental car and I'm like, huh, maybe I can just drive all the way to Milwaukee and see Gaelic Storm before I deploy to Afghanistan. It might never come back. It's a, it's a 13 hour drive, by the way. So Friday course ends at, at uh, two. I drive through the night to Milwaukee. And the other reason I went there, this is also a funny story, is I saw a band. Uh, it's a Gaelic Storm and Red Hot Chili uh, Peppers. It wasn't the Red Hot Chili, Chili Peppers, yeah. Really? It was the yeah, Red Hot Chili Pipers. Pipers. The Red Hot Chili Pipers, who are also good. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to see the, the the Peppers at Milwaukee. And maybe I can see my family or something. And it was like the Chili Pipers. They come out wearing bagpipes. I'm like, what in the world? Um, <laughs> but so I drive through the night. I run a 5K. I go to this festival, which is the largest Irish fest in, in the U.S. And it's downtown Milwaukee on Lake Michigan. And it was just it was such a fun experience because the the you could tell the people loved it. It was a community feeling place. They have like 17 stages of music and it was just, it was such a fun day. Um, and from that event on outside of Afghanistan, I would go back to that Milwaukee Irish Fest, no matter where I was stationed with my family. And it just kind of, it always reinforced what community and healthy like society would look like if you're if you're living it in a communal sense. Um, they have three thousand, I think, volunteers. So that like reinforced the service aspect that's always important um, to Hero Hut in my life. And uh, so I got out 
of the military and just like pretty much every military member out there, you are looking for ways to either connect back to that camaraderie you had in the military or also find maybe some help with different things that are going on in your life. Um, for me, I didn't necessarily need the resource help, but I had no idea where to even look. And I was in a major city like Chicago. I was like, all right, where can I volunteer? I'm like, oh, I guess I'll Google this. But that's kind of shocking that, you know, that you wouldn't even know where to to volunteer or, hey, how do I, I'm, I've been told as I'm getting out, I need to go to the VA. Well, what's the process for that? I'm a captain from West Point that doesn't even know the process to get your own benefits. And so like over the course of a year or two, um, another, basically, this is where the hinge moment hit. I had called the Milwaukee Irish Fest general hotline and I said, Hey, I'd like to either donate money or just kind of volunteer some of my time for my business. Um, and the executive director ended up picking up. He's like, Hey Dave, um, I'm, I'm two weeks into this job. Can you, can I give you a call back in a little bit? And we ended up talking a long time and he's like, I, you know, your story is pretty cool. Can you maybe help us come up with an idea with some of our team of what we can do for veterans and first responders at our festival. Yeah. Um, and that first year they called it the Heroes Hut. They came up with a name, but the concept was exactly what Hero Hut is today. And it's a resource camaraderie hospitality hub at major events where veterans can feel like they're they're back with their, you know, family and friends. They're able to easily get answers from, you know, the VA. Uh, we had, I think at this point, 45 different organizations just in the Irish Fest that we've done alone. So you're talking about, you know, the VFW, USO, Team RWB, a lot of these organizations, we set up, we do all the coordination as Hero Hut, but then they use the area just to kind of get their resources out there. Um, first year alone, we had, I think, about 1,500 people come to the Hero Hut. And it was like, whoa. Um, and the executive director called me, his name was Mike Mitchell, after he, was, and he said, Dave, did you maybe think about doing this at other events? I was like, well, I got a lot going on in my personal life right now. I got a lot going on, you know, in my business that I'm trying to keep afloat. No, I've not thought about starting a nonprofit, but why not? Let's do it. And so I called as many of my friends and family as I could. I said, Hey, none of us have business degrees. None of us have run a nonprofit who wants to jump off the cliff and start a nonprofit. Um, and a lot of them did. And so we, we started Hero Hut in 2019 and then COVID kicked off. Right. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, we are an event in-person nonprofit and we can't do anything. Um, but shortly thereafter, we were able to get into the PGA for a couple of events. And then we got into marathons. I saw the, yeah. I saw the PGA Tour uh, event at Barbersaw. Yeah. Yep. And we, we got into marathons and then we got into... Uh, you know, here in Indiana, we're, we're talking to hockey and we're talking to other music festivals. We're talking to um, Christmas events or the zoo or whatever. And and the concept has just resonated across the board where we're in 13 states now setting up these hero huts. Next week, we have the Alamo Bowl, which is a huge college football bowl game. Um, and we set up these areas so that veterans and their families and first responders can connect to each other in a meaningful way and just you know, sometimes that that initial interaction is enough to get someone back into the idea of being a part of a, a community again. And then we also try to really instill the, that sense of service. Because I think, you know, when you talk about mental toughness, being a part of a healthy community really can enhance that. And then having a higher calling and a purpose, so that service-minded concept, again, is going to reinforce that mental toughness. It's, the, it's those days where you're feeling sorry for yourself but you're knowing, hey, I've got brothers and sisters out here that I need to help. You're able to get through those times a lot easier than if you don't have that that kind of purpose. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And and I mean, Hero Hut. I mean, you've done, I mean, a fantastic job of, of partnering with other nonprofits. I mean, uh, like the War Within, for instance. Yep. Yep. So I, I it's I think we're at over 150 organizations that have have been able to utilize Hero Hut spaces so far just in wow. in three years. And so that I would I will say there's a lot of organizations that do a good job at that. I'm not saying that no one it collaborates, but a lot of times the nonprofit landscape has really suffered from the lack of collaboration. You know, you'll you'll have a lot of organizations going after the same problem in their city, but they're fighting over 
grant dollars or they think the other the other groups maybe a competitor to theirs whether that's tackling homelessness or maybe where they're a, a a trade organization that's trying to help with job benefits or you know things like that and you have a lot of competition in that landscape and in reality when i started it and i i saw that i'm like what are we doing especially in the veteran like community we have to get off that mindset if we're not tackling some of these bigger issues together then it's not we're not going to solve anything you're just you're just causing more problems the other thing there's there's only so many people out there in each city that really are just like really getting after life and if we're all kind of in our own little silos not working together you're really limiting the impact you can have uh, out there so with hero hut we're not a you know a niche resource provider we're not going to pretend to say that oh we have call us if you want to get your va benefits or call us if you want to um learn about your educational benefits or or call us if you uh, are homeless or you're suffering with mental health. We're not those people, but we are a spot where if you come to a hero hut, nine times out of 10, you'll find someone that will be able to look you in the face, eye to eye in person and give you that information. Um, and it's, it's just, it's really taken off. Uh, I, I really believe in that, in the person to person relationships, especially in this day and age where, you know, it is what it is. Technology is what it is. We connect mostly social media and we're very isolated and so there's that need for that that human connection there uh, in person. Yeah. David, what is it that you see um, most veterans that are reintegrating, whether they were in combat or not? But what, what do you see that most struggle with? Uh, I think, again, just a, a lack of a sense of purpose in some fashion and a sense of being a part of a healthy community. Not that the, <laughs> the military is always a healthy community. Uh, some would say we're probably all crazy people, but uh, that's besides the point. I would say a lot of it is just understanding where to go. You know, in the military, you're you're typically given your orders. You're going to follow your orders. You're going to be a part of this team. You're going to buy in. And if you don't, you're out. And then you get out into the normal world. And it's kind of like, especially in America, it's like, well, you're out there, do your own thing, figure it out yourself. Uh, you're, we're not going to hold your hand. You're not going to, you're not going to have a community to support you. Um, and I think that kind of sucks even for non-military people, you know, and not having a community is horrible. So for a veteran who is used to almost being like forced to have a community then to come out and not have that is a really big challenge. And it, it leaves you isolated it can leave you just kind of really questioning a lot of different things going on in your own life. And it leaves you very vulnerable at times um, to, to when life does happen and you're going through a divorce or you're going through financial issues or you're going through, Hey, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills this month. You know? So if you don't have the community and then you're going through that, that's when you're going to have the bigger issues that you see a lot of times in the veteran community. Mm -hmm. Cause I think like we, as a, <clears throat> military do a really good job of the ramp up of the approach of getting people prepared, but we haven't done a good job of when they come down off that mountaintop and then reintegrating. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think one of the cool things about hero hut, and this is what there was a really good guy. He was a special forces guy that did and saw way more combat than I did shot multiple times. Just amazing guy. He, he actually started a, his own nonprofit called purple heart racing. So you have to, you might have to bring him on. He's okay. An incredible dude. Um, but he had a really good, they did an impromptu interview at a hero hut at the Dublin Irish fest over in Columbus, Ohio. And he really talked, he hit it on the, out of the park for what hero hut's all about. And it's integrating, not just with the veteran population. Cause a lot of times those that are not veterans or not familiar with the, the military uh, community, We'll assume it's just this kind of like little like other, like we're almost like aliens out there. And in reality, what we want to do is integrate them into all parts of life because most veterans, like the, the ones that are in a, in a healthy spot can give back so much to their, their community and they want to. And so with Hero Hut, we try to integrate with our, our local governments and our communities. We're trying to integrate with local business leaders. We're trying to integrate, you know, with people like you at SpokeNote and that whole community. It's not that we're, we want to change the world alone. We want to do it all together. Um, and that's one of the the common 
misnomers is that the the veteran gets out and they just kind of get put in a box as a veteran when in reality they're still a part of the that's just part of their identity but they're they're a part of the community at large mm-hmm. want to listen to your favorite music but you're sick of all the commercial interruptions and negative news today tune in to kukoradio.com music for your mindset we're a commercial free online radio station playing nothing but hits our free iOS and Android apps are available for download at kukoradio.com. Yeah, well said, man. David, what um what question should I be asking that uh that I just haven't asked? <laughs> um I don't know. I mean, I I I appreciate the time. I think this was a it was a good good summary. I really appreciate the uh the opportunity to come on here. Um you know, one of the things that I would say is don't be afraid if if you are interested in helping either a local nonprofit that's in your own city or, or Hero Hut, or if you're interested in learning more how you can get involved. Everything that we've done with Hero Hut has been done organically. So, you know, we're 100% volunteers still to this date. Haven't got a grant yet. <laughs> uh, we've had, you know, individual donors and sponsors help us get to where we're at, uh, family members, all that kind of stuff. But we've had a lot of people that just said, hey, um, you know, for instance, Rob, maybe you're like, hey, there's this awesome uh, endurance race that I go to every year. I know the race director. I'd like to make an interest to see if I can get Hero Hut. We've had like stuff like that happen all over the, the country at this point where we're able then to just connect in a lot of just really healthy, organic ways to where it's not like a forced pitch. Like I don't, it's very rare for me to have to go to an event and say, can we bring Hero Hut there? It's usually someone being like, I would like to make an intro for you all because I care about this cause or this population group and I'd like to help. So that's, you know, I guess that's my, my last thoughts, at least on that. It's awesome. No, right. When you said that, man, I've, I've, I've thought of a couple as well. So David, my man, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, uh, sharing your story, uh, experience, strength and hope, man. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Appreciate it. So I'm sure we'll run into each other again here shortly. to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell. And subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.